Our scripture today comes to us from the book of Exodus. We're in the Old Testament today. A lectionary passage takes us to Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. A very unusual story that has a very unusual ending. So, listen up. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he he took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. And they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, Ah, it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. It was relatively early in my ministry when I really didn't know what I was doing. I really still don't know what I'm doing, but I've learned to fake it well. (laughs) I was a brand new pastor at one of my former congregations, and I was moderating the congregational meeting. The session at that meeting was informing the congregation that we were going forward with a deficit budget. Pledges had not come in as hoped. But we did not know any way forward except to hope and pray that the congregation would, over the year, rally to cover our expenses as well as our commitments to our mission partners around the world. This information, you can imagine, was met with great concern by the members and sparked 
quite an intense debate. Wet behind the ears, and again, not knowing what I was doing, I did my best to moderate this rather intense discussion, and at one point, a gentleman about twice my age raised his hand and asked if he could come to the front and make a speech to the congregation. I said no. <laughs> that he could say what he had to say right where he was, just like the rest of us. By the look on all the members of the faces of the congregation, I realized that this was not a smart thing to say. Evidently, I learned later that this was not a guy you kept in his place. He was a prominent lawyer in town and was used to center stage. So he made his speech from where he was, but I could tell he was hopping mad at me. Nobody tells him what he can and cannot do. The next morning, he was in my office dressing me down and in no uncertain terms insisting that I would never do that to him again. When he left the office, I began wondering about what other career options I could explore. I <laughs> picked up the phone and called my father, who had recently retired from 40 years of ministry, and he gently talked me off the ledge. He reminded me that this would probably not be the last time something like that would happen. Over the next few months, I paid a couple of visits to my lawyer friend just to see if I could smooth some feathers, but with no obvious success. So imagine my surprise when months following, I was home late one night watching television and a knock came to the door. I, we lived in the church manse, which was right across the street from the church, so everyone knew where to find the pastor. I opened the door and there he stood, my lawyer friend. I thought, holy smokes, he's not letting this thing go. And then I saw the tears in his eyes and on his cheeks. I opened the door and said, Bill, what's going on? He said, it's my son. It's my son. He's in trouble. I invited him in, took him to the kitchen, made him some coffee. And for the next 90 minutes, we talked about his son, who had just been arrested for selling drugs. And that the boy had been difficult for years. But now he was in jail. And now this counselor of the law was worried sick over what the law might do to his flesh and blood. The proud and brazen speechmaker had no speeches. The man with the heart of steel now just had a tender and broken heart, not knowing what to do. The next morning we were down at the jail visiting his son. In the good book, the prophet Ezekiel tells us not just once, but twice, that the thing God wants to do with God's people is that he wants to take from us our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. A new heart I will give you, God says, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. It's one of those yearnings of God that to me makes all the sense in the world because I think one of the great struggles in life 
is knowing what to do with our hearts as our hearts contend with all the experiences of life. Truth is, life can be hard, and the hard things of life can have their effect upon our hearts. It's often the hard things of life that can harden our hearts. Hurts and, and disappointments and pressure and the need to succeed and undue criticism and failure and a thousand other things have their way of turning our hearts to stone bitterness and anger and indifference and cynicism and hopelessness creep in and they have their way of calcifying the tender hearts of our youth. So it makes all the sense in the world when Ezekiel tells us that the yearning of God is to somehow change these hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, hearts to feel, hearts that can still hurt Hearts that can still care, still love. And so it makes all the sense in the world when the Exodus storyteller tells us at the time when the people of God, whom God has delivered from the bondage of slavery, has made a way for them through the sea, has led them into the wilderness, has given them a way to live, has sent manna from heaven, and it makes all the sense in the world when God looks down from above and sees that his people the people he so loved and cared for. His people have decided to build for themselves a God of stone, a God of mineral, a God of metal, a God with no heart, no flesh. They have melted down their gold and made for themselves a golden calf, a God that does not feel, a God that does not love, a God that does not care. And this is what they have done to themselves. Turn from a God whose heart, shall we say, is of flesh and turn to a God whose heart is of stone. And so it makes all the sense in the world when Moses and God come face to face up on the mountain. God just cannot control anymore his heart. His heart burns. His heart is broken. His heart weeps. His heart rages with anger. His heart is getting the better of him, and maybe it's just as well that his heart just turns to stone. Wipe these people from the face of the earth. Be done with them. Give up on them. Retreat into the heavens and say, good luck to you. Bitterness and anger and disappointment are creeping in and possibly calcifying Maybe this is the precipice upon which God's heart balances. Maybe that's what God shows us up there on that mountain, that God, too, has a real heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that can break, a heart that can be disappointed, a heart that can feel, a heart that is vulnerable. And maybe, just maybe, that's what Moses knows about God. Scripture tells us that God would talk to Moses face to face as one who speaks to a friend. Maybe it's God's friend Moses who knows enough about the heart of God to know that even God himself is vulnerable. Because God cannot have a heart of flesh without it being at risk of breaking, turning to stone. 
And when Moses sees the raging anger of God, Moses knows maybe that it rages from a heart of flesh, a heart that feels, a heart that loves, a heart that cares. And like any good friend, Moses reminds God of who God is, that this broken heart is just that, a heart of flesh that's been torn into, but it's a heart of flesh still, and that God cannot give in. God cannot let go. God must change God's mind. What are friends for but to call us back to ourselves? our real selves, our real hearts of flesh. And maybe that's why the storyteller takes the risk to tell us that after this heart-to-heart between friends, that God changed his mind about what he wanted to do with his people. God changed his mind? You can't say that about God. God never changes his mind. Oh, but maybe you can if you're willing to believe that God does have this heart of flesh, this heart that feels, this heart that hurts, this heart that breaks. And maybe that's what it means to be God, that even God, even God has friends who can speak to God's heart. Can you imagine that? That God has friends who can speak to God's heart sure helps to explain when Jesus sits down with his disciples and says to them that he will no longer call them servants, he will call them friends. And he calls them friends maybe because he sees enough in them that they're beginning to understand his heart. Through three years of traveling together and they're starting to know his heart. That Jesus yearns for friends who know his heart which helps me to understand the story that's always been hard for me to understand, that when Jesus is confronted, remember, by that Gentile woman begging him to heal her daughter, and the first thing Jesus says is, not interested. He's not interested because this woman is outside the covenant of people. He doesn't, she doesn't know all the rules and regulations. So Jesus says, not interested, turns his back. But the mother is a mother, <laughs> And the mother has this heart of flesh, and she's counting on Jesus to have the same thing. She's not going to let him go unless he claims his own heart of flesh. This foreign woman speaks to Jesus' heart, and Jesus changes his mind. He's found someone who knows his heart and has the courage to speak to his heart. And Jesus makes her daughter well. Maybe that's what happens when Jesus is strapped up on that cross with the Romans and the religious authorities deriding him and demeaning him. Scripture says the sky turned black and the earthquake and the lightning peeled, and you just know that God's heart is breaking. You just know that God's right back there in the wilderness ready to wipe the earth clean of all these hard-hearted people. And yet right when God is on the precipice of flesh and stone, Jesus calls into the clouds and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Remember your heart, Father. Remember how much you care, Father. Remember why you sent me, Father. Forgive them now. Forgive them tomorrow. Forgive them the next day. Forgive them till the cows come home. And it all gets me to thinking about this friendship thing. This friendship thing. This friendship thing that we have with God. 
I don't know about you, but whenever I thought about my friendship with God, I've always thought about it as a kind of a one-way thing. You know, we, we sing what a friend we have in Jesus, and it's true. We've got a great friend in Jesus, but we never sing what a friend Jesus has in me. And maybe we don't because we're just plain humble, or maybe we don't because we just don't think much about what Jesus wants. Does Jesus really want that? Does God really want that? Is it possible that God is looking for someone to know his heart, to speak to his heart, to call him back to his heart? That God is looking for a partner in the heart thing. Which makes me wonder about the prayer thing. I'm not sure who said it or who wrote it, but I read once that prayer makes us the familiars of God. Prayer makes us the familiars of God. That the whole point of prayer is to become God's friend. The whole point of prayer is to to speak to the heart of God, to, to learn about the heart of God, to know the heart of God, to commune with the heart of God, to partner with the heart of God. Oh, how often I have asked the good Lord for golden calves. How about you? Oh, God, just give me what I want and I'll send you away. Give me that thing that will get me ahead so I can leave you behind. And God's heart breaks. Because God is after friendship, it seems. Someone with whom to speak face to face. Someone familiar with his heart. And maybe if these are our prayers, these inquiries into the heart of God, Maybe we will learn more and more what love is about. For this is the journey, isn't it? To learn the love of God. To learn the heart of God. I, like you perhaps, am just a plebe in this journey. 